Well, go ahead and turn your, your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 10, and we're going to finish up chapter 10 this morning. Romans 10, we're going to look at verses 16 through 21. Romans 10, 16 through 21. Read along with me. Romans 10, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I hope as we study this word, this uh, would be one of those passages that if you asked a seminary student to pick any passage in the Bible to preach from, it's probably not the one that gets chosen 10 times out of 10. And as we preach through uh, the Bible, we come to various passages, um, things that maybe on first reading are a bit quizzical, we're not sure what's going on. But I trust that as we study this passage, it will become very encouraging to our hearts as we try and discern, which I think is is Paul's main point here, the difference between true and false faith. Pastor Michael Lawrence writes of a recent conversation he had with one of his friends. I'm going to quote him at length here. He says, I was talking to one of my friends about his two adult kids. He's worried about them. They're not into drugs or partying. They both have healthy, warm relationships with their parents and their peers. They went to excellent universities and excelled. They're athletic, ambitious, beautiful, charming young adults. If they were your kids, you'd be proud of them, as my friend is. Still, you'd be worried, because neither of them seems to have the slightest interest in Jesus Christ. And to make matters more difficult, both of them identify themselves as Christians. You see, these two kids were raised in the church. They learned their Bible lessons in Sunday school. They were active in the youth group. They were never outwardly rebellious. They each prayed the sinner's prayer, and they were baptized. When they went off to college, they kept the nice moral behavior they'd learned at church, but they basically left Jesus behind. They didn't abandon the label of Christian. They simply stopped showing interest in the Christian life and in Christ's body, the church. You understand, then, why my friend is worried. He has nice kids who are convinced they don't need Jesus because they think they already have him. Yet the more he watches their adult lives unfold, the less and less confident he is that they even know Jesus at all. End quote. I wish... This were uncommon. But this story happens again and again. 
Sometimes wayward young adults return to the church, but if it's only to be a nicer person or perhaps get their lives in order or raise their kids with, quote-unquote, good morals, then there's something still missing. You see, too many parents assume that if they enroll their kids in all the best programs, teach them to do the right things, pray the sinner's prayer even with them, then they'll be locked in, that they'll finally and firmly belong to God for their whole lives. But you see, there's a biblical distinction between a true and a false faith. There are those who know of gospel truth but show that they don't know God by how they live their lives. That's why 1 John 2.19 is in the Bible. It says very clearly, they went out from us because they were not really of us. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, there are those who will come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. There will be some who hear, some who understand the gospel, even who say, Lord, Lord, and I must be a Christian, who don't belong to Christ, because there is such a thing as true and false faith. And if eternity is at stake, then shouldn't we fervently make sure that we can discern between the two? If the response to God's gospel that saves is faith, ought we, learn, ought we to learn to evaluate true gospel faith? Learning about genuine gospel faith should affect how we parent. It should affect how we teach Sunday school. It should affect how our youth groups are run. It should affect how we disciple one another. And it should affect how we think of our own faith. You see, we need to learn how to walk in a new life, not just be nice. And so as we continue to study faith in Romans 10, this morning we're going to ask five questions that help identify gospel faith. And by gospel faith, I mean genuine saving faith. And so we'll see five questions that help us discern true from false now, before we get to our first question, we need to recall that Paul has already taught us about saving faith earlier in chapter 10. He has said specifically that faith is a faith that confesses with our mouth and believes in our heart that the Jesus Christ is Lord and he ought to have claim over your life. Faith then is reflecting a desire to serve Jesus as king with all our heart soul, mind, and strength. And humanly speaking, faith comes out through a series of necessary steps. And, and Paul walks through those steps in verses 14 and 15, kind of in reverse order. And to kind of get the argument here, let, let's, let's read this, and let's start with verse 13. He says in verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. You see, calling on Christ as Lord, confessing publicly your allegiance to Jesus is absolutely necessary to be a Christian. You are not born a Christian. You are to do this publicly and as an adult. 
Confession reflects then an internal belief. And, and that's his point as he continues. Verse 14, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? You see, you must hear and understand and internalize and trust in the gospel. And before you really even hear and understand, what else needs to happen? Verse 14 continues. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach this good news. And so we come to realize that the gospel that we believe in must be a message. It's truth about God, about who we are as sinners, about the finished work of Christ on the cross that, that makes demands of us. It is a message that requires a clear and obvious response. The gospel is not a set of a few facts, like the sky is blue and seven times seven is 49 that you must believe. No, the gospel is a reality that moves our whole lives in a different direction. And so Paul notes that in spite of hearing the gospel, in spite of understanding what Christ has done, there will be some who simply don't care. And this is fascinating. He, he doesn't call them unbelievers first. He actually says that they disobey the gospel. And so our first question that we need to ask is, why is obedience connected to gospel faith? Why is obedience connected to gospel faith? Well, let's put this question in the context of a loving parent-child relationship. Perhaps a child knows that his mom and dad love him, and he knows that they want what is best for him. But in spite of that knowledge, in spite of that belief even, he routinely hears what they want him to do and does the exact opposite. He says, go to bed. And his parents say, go to bed. And he sneaks up an iPad to read and look and play. His parents say, do your homework. And he says, you know what, I'm going to lie and not turn anything in. His parents say, eat your vegetables. And the dog gets plenty of green things underneath the table. And at some point, that child, if he truly believes his parents know and want what is best for him, will see the folly, or the foolishness of his ways. And he'll start to obey more. He'll hate his rebellion and he'll repent of his disobedience. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. You say you've heard and believe the gospel. You say you love God, that you need Jesus' sacrifice. You sing about it. You love songs about it. Then it's assumed that you'll aim to obey God. And not just pick and choose the passages that you obey, but to do whatever God tells you to do. You see, obedience and gospel faith are connected because gospel faith always leads to a life of obedience. And please don't hear me say it leads to a life of perfection. That's not what it says. It's not what I believe, all right? This is clearly talking about a general trajectory of obeying God. You all understand what it looks like for somebody to say they believe in Jesus Christ and then think he has no rule over their life. That's what we're talking about. And the opposite is also true. 
false faith or unbelief causes individuals then to remain in sin. So let's look at what Paul notes in the beginning of verse 16. He starts out with the word but there. Uh, The but is the strongest adversative in Greek. So in contrast to uh, someone who, you know, calls on the name of the Lord and proclaims how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, in contrast to a Christian, Paul writes, "Um, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Do you see how he connects obeying the gospel and believing the message? Because what does he say next, right? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So speaking of those who hear the gospel but do not have saving faith, Paul simply says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And then he quotes Isaiah to show for many hundreds of years before, there have been those who heard God's clear message and yet still reject it. And quoting Isaiah's lament, he says very clearly, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And as was true for the Israelites in Isaiah's day, is true of many today. There will be plenty who hear the gospel, plenty who grow up knowing truth about God, even many who pray a sinner's prayer at a time, who don't ultimately follow Christ as their Lord, who don't orient their lives towards obedience. To help you understand that this is a common phenomenon in the course of redemptive history. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Now you might remember that Isaiah 6 records Isaiah's heavenly throne room vision. The train of uh, the angels and God flowing over overflowing the earth, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the heavenly throne room with smoke, and it's just a majestic, powerful uh, commissioning of Isaiah before uh, his holy God. But what you might not remember is that at the end of the vision, God also commissions Isaiah to be his messenger, and he actually promises that even as Isaiah is sent to be God's messenger, Isaiah's message and God's message will often fall on deaf ears. Look at Isaiah 6, verse 8. God asked the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And so God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. In other words, the more clearly God spoke to his people, the more fervently Isaiah prophesied God's word, the harder the people's hearts got. That's why he says in verse 10, their hearts would become dull. How does a blade get dull? By repeatedly hitting it on something else, right? And it gets duller and duller and duller the more you hit it, the more you use it, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And so it is with those who are, how do your ears get deaf? 
It's not with just one instantaneous thing, unless you have some sort of disease. It's long, prolonged, high volumes over time, and you slowly lose your hearing. That's generally how that happens. And so the idea here is that Isaiah's gospel message that he preaches will not serve to open their eyes, but will instead dull the hearts of these people because there's no faith, and thus there's no opportunity for turning and no obedience Now, to see that this is also the case for the future, look to Isaiah 52 and 53. Turn ahead uh, several chapters to Isaiah 52 and 53. In these chapters, too, we see that Israel will hear the good news of a coming redeemer. Uh, This idea that there's going to be this messianic king who will rule over the earth, and they also, in these a couple of chapters speak of a coming Messiah who will be a suffering Messiah. And so as these two visions of a coming king are put right next to each other, many ultimately will reject him. So before Isaiah speaks of a suffering Messiah, we actually first see him tell of God's glorious reign of Messiah as king. So, so read Isaiah 52, 6 and 7. It says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There's going to be visible manifestation, an obvious uh, proclamation that Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, will reign in Zion, that great city Jerusalem. He prophesies of a day when God's salvation will be known, when his kingship will be evident to everyone, but the servant king must first come to suffer. And so he then juxtaposes this vision of a reigning king to these words in Isaiah 52, 13, and 14. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He continues to proclaim the sufferings of Jesus in Isaiah 53. And you see these contrasting visions of a great king and the good news that comes from the suffering king's sacrifice will be too much for some to believe. And so Isaiah prophesies, just as many rejected God's word in his day, so too many will reject this suffering Christ. And so he asked the rhetorical question at the beginning of 53 verse 1, which was quoted in Romans 10. So who has believed what he has heard from us? The implication is they haven't. They haven't trusted this. They haven't seen the need for both a suffering servant and a reigning king. So go back to Romans 10. See, the gospel is wonderful. The gospel answers our greatest need, and you would and ought to expect it to immediately be embraced as soon as you hear that your greatest need for a Savior, your greatest need to be reconciled to God is met through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You should and you ought to embrace it and rejoice in that, but the gospel also demands that we serve Christ as Lord. 
Our faith in King Jesus means we do what he wants, not what I want, as of first importance. And so genuine saving faith always produces a life of obedience. That is exactly why so many continue to reject Christ. Listen, there is no bifurcation between believing Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. There's no division between Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. Listen, if he is Savior, it's because he is Lord. And thus, Jesus, the Savior, the suffering servant, demands your all. Being nice isn't good enough. Saying a prayer as a child one time isn't an act that necessarily saves because the right words were used. No, genuine faith is always evidenced in an obedient faith. And that's why from the beginning of Romans, Paul has connected obedience to faith. Look just at the beginning, Romans chapter 1. As Paul is just introducing this great epistle, he talks about his role, his ministry in Romans chapter 1. He is an apostle. He is a sent one. He is on mission for the Lord. He is faithful to proclaim the gospel message. And listen to what he says in Romans 1 verse 5. Look at these words. It's through Christ that we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations. You see, the goal of Paul's ministry was always an obedient faith. Because obedient faith is definitional of what is genuine, saving, gospel faith. So let's go back to Romans chapter 10 and we're going to look at our next question, okay? Question number two. Can you trust in Jesus without hearing the gospel? We've seen clearly obedience is always connected to gospel faith. Second question is, can you trust in Jesus without hearing the gospel? Now, there's been this trend in in some missionary movements to look for what they would call secret believers. And these are people who belong to God prior to them hearing about Jesus. And some would call this person, him or her, a quote-unquote person of peace, If you're in mission circles or read in mission literature, you've probably heard of this. And this person of peace would probably be the pillar of their family group or or their community or their society, not because they were ruthless in maintaining power, but because they were selfless and embodied some of the moral teachings that are found in the Bible. And this person of peace is generally welcoming to Christian missionaries and willing to listen to what the Bible has to say. But what it looks like for this person in peace to totally reject their religion for the sake of Jesus is sadly debated. You see, a lot will say that the goal is something that they would call obedience-based discipleship. And by that, they mean help someone who doesn't know Jesus obey the commands of Jesus, regardless of whether or not they believe all that the Bible says about Jesus which is to show the moral commands of the Bible without necessarily embracing Christ and rejecting their own faith. So many teach this really as a form of inclusivism, that there are many people in different faith traditions who are secret Christians 
For example, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, teaches this through their discipleship training schools, right? So this is not an uncommon way of doing ministry. They say you can become a Christian and not know Christ so long as you follow the general moral code of Christ. But I ask, who are you to decide what scriptural truths, which God-revealed moral principles are optional? Because God is very clear that you cannot worship another God besides him. It's the very first commandment, isn't it? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, if you want to get to heaven on good works, you must be perfect as God is perfect. And certainly even the best in other societies can't do that. He showed us again and again that he is the only good shepherd of our souls able to lead us to God in John chapter 10. So I ask, which of these commands are optional? Because none of those work if you are a secret Christian in some other religion. So is there a wideness to God's saving love? Is it possible to trust in Jesus without hearing the gospel? Paul says, absolutely not. As he summarized much of chapter 10 in verse 17 with these words, read with me. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Right? How is it that saving faith comes? It comes from hearing a message, knowing the message, knowing what the Bible says through specifically the word of Christ, that it is the teachings of Christ, the recorded teachings of Jesus, the scriptures that reveal what God says about himself, what God shows us about ourselves, about needing to be reconciled. There is content to our faith. It is objective. It is true content. It is not optional content based on where you grew up or what you want to believe. And so he says very clearly, faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. And so as we support missionaries, we want to support those who are absolutely crystal clear on their gospel proclamation, who habitually tell others of the hope that comes in Christ alone, and who don't buy into the lie that God would accept a secret Christian, so long as they have a moral code that is kind of like Jesus's. For the gospel message is always clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. Thus, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, had to die in our place as a substitute for our sins. That is the only way anyone is reconciled to God. So to be a Christian, you have to hear and you have to believe that gospel message. And Paul continues, and he brings up a related point, and we see our third question here. Is gospel ignorance a legitimate excuse? Is gospel ignorance a legitimate excuse? And at this point, some might wonder, well, how can God be fair if someone dies without ever having heard the gospel, without having the chance to even perhaps reject Jesus as their Savior? Can God still find fault with that person? Perhaps, as many Roman Catholics believe, after a while, those ignorant people would spend some time in purgatory and God will let those ignorant people back into heaven at some point. But Paul reminds us 
that is not an option. God's voice has gone out to the whole world. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? That is the, the whole world. He's talking about anybody here. He's going to switch to Israel in the next verse. But he says, has, has anybody not heard? Is it possible that some are ignorant and, and just haven't heard the gospel? Is, is there ever a legitimate excuse? But I ask, did, did Israel not hear? Uh, but I ask, uh, have they not heard? The assumption is, yes, of course they've heard. And so he answers himself, indeed they have heard. And then he quotes Psalm 19, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now this isn't hyperbole saying that the gospel message 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead has extended out to the world here. The gospel message has not extended out to the world at this point. That's why Paul wants to go to, to, to Spain and preach the gospel there. No, Paul intentionally quotes Psalm 19, verse 4, which is one of the clearest examples of how general revelation about God comes to us from all of creation. See, the whole creation cries out, God must be God. God made me. And Psalm 19 makes that point. And so just listen as I read Psalm 19, this first couple of verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So Paul asks, is it possible that some are ignorant of God or have a valid excuse for not coming to him? Is it possible that some have not heard the song of creation about their creator? No. Everyone has heard and is without excuse. This is actually a point that he's made earlier in the book of Romans. Go to Romans 1, verse 19. Paul made this point in Romans 1 as he taught that we all, by nature, stand justly or fairly condemned before a holy God. We have no excuse because we all sin. Because all creation points to a God. And at some point, certainly, we all knew of God. Listen to Romans 1, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That is the whole world. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. This is everybody, right? But they became futile in their thinking. And you might say after generations and generations and generations of futility of thinking, knowledge about God, which used to be even more clear, is now obfuscated. It's, it's, it's hard to see and, and veiled in other religious systems. So they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
So as the whole world heard part of God's speech about himself, absolutely. But what do they do with that speech? Well, they come up with their own ways to get to God, their own ideas of who God is. They make up gods according to whatever they want. So is gospel ignorance a valid excuse to reject God or to blame God? Absolutely not. Beloved, we have no one to blame but ourselves. An unbeliever, even a believer in some false religion, has no one to blame but themselves for their just and fair condemnation. This is why Christians are called to proclaim the gospel, to know the gospel. I am genuinely worried for those who claim to know Jesus and yet think that some who don't know Jesus will somehow get to heaven. Genuine gospel faith understands and believes in the one true God and the one true way to be right with him. These are not optional doctrines. You can't believe in a Jesus of your own making. You can't pick and choose the words of Jesus that you like. Interestingly enough, that's exactly what a panel of religious scholars did in the late 1980s and the early 90s. They called this panel of scholars the Jesus Seminar. You might have heard of this at some point. But over several years, a panel of religious uh, scholars, New Testament scholars, got together and voted on every saying of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. And they would determine whether or not they would accept or reject the words of Jesus based on the popular vote of these scholars. The result, over 80% of the Gospels were rejected as not coming from Jesus. Kind of reminds you of Thomas Jefferson, right, and cutting out little pieces of the Bible that he didn't like. This is the theological heritage of what you might call liberal Christianity, uh, of the Methodist Church in America, of Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, uh, of Anglicans. This is the heritage that they have imbibed for generations. And anyone else who watches the History Channel and thinks, you know what, I'll be a Christian, but I surely can't trust what they see in the Bible because none of these experts do. I'm better off coming up with my own ideas of Jesus, my own way to get to God. All God really cares about is that I'm just a good person. So we ask the question, is gospel ignorance or gospel rejection ever excusable? Your answer helps you identify genuine from fake faith. There's a fourth question that helps identify genuine gospel faith. Number four, how does jealousy and anger ruin gospel faith? How does jealousy and anger ruin gospel faith? Paul introduces another category of unbelief in these verses. Not only do people ignore what should be clear about God and make up their own ideas, not only do people bristle at obeying God's word and dismiss it when it challenges what they want to do, but there are plenty of unbelievers who have heard God's gospel, fully understand that gospel, even believe the gospel to be true, who nonetheless reject God's gospel simply because they love their own sin more or they don't want to lose their culture or because they have a deep-seated hatred for others or they might just fear men. And the story of Israel in the New Testament is a story not of gospel ignorance, 
but of how a sinful heart attitude spoiled what faith they had. Look at Romans 10, verse 19. Romans 10, verse 19. Paul turns his attention to Israel now. He says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? And the assumed answer is like before, well, of course they understood. They heard all this from Jesus' mouth. So many people saw what Jesus did and were there for much of Jesus' ministry. So I asked, did Israel not understand? Well, of course they understood. The real issue for Israel's unbelief is found in something Moses said in verse 19. He says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Now, do you remember the story about the good Pharisee who helped a man injured on the Jericho Road? Of course you don't. There's no such story of the good Pharisee right? Jesus didn't tell that story. He told a different story uh, of something that completely destroyed the Jewish ideas of right and wrong. He told the story of what? The good Samaritan. You see, it was the good Samaritan, this loathed people group of the Israelites, who was the one person who helped this man who was sitting there injured and dying on the Jericho Road. Uh, a priest came by, a Levi came by, they, they just walked around the other side, they went away, they didn't do anything. It was the good Samaritan who came and did this, and, and, and it just blew the Jewish mind that there could be a, such a thing as a good Samaritan. It would come across sounding kind of like the parable of the good Hamas rebel. And then there were women. There were tax collectors. There were all sorts of lower-tiered socialites following Jesus. And very clearly, part of the Jewish rejection of Jesus was rooted in their love affair with their culture, even with their prejudices and their hatreds. Just like Moses prophesied, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Jealousy, ethnic pride, and, and anger towards a whole people are deadly, dangerous sins. At times, enough to ruin gospel faith. So many of the Jews understood Jesus. Uh, for example, John 12, 42 says that many believed in Jesus, but for fear of the cultural pressures, simply were unwilling to confess that they believed in Jesus. And they're not the only ones who let cultural hatred overshadow faith. Sometimes I'm a bit shocked at the words that I hear about illegal immigrants, refugee seekers. They're so despised among some Americans that they're seen as subhuman. We'd rather snarl and build a bigger wall instead of learning about the horrendous plights of many poor immigrants. Rather than learning what they've endured, the reasons why many risk it all to get to the U.S. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be immigration policies, but, but you have to have a compassion for people, even people that aren't like you. Some listen to people speak a different language at the grocery store and wonder under, mutter under their breath, why can't they just speak English if they're going to come to America? Who says that? Why do you say that? Others buy into the culture and linguistic superiority uh, argument that I've seen in some fundamentalist circles who see the King James Version is the only legitimate version of the Bible, right? I mean, where do you get that? 
elevating the, the culture and, and preserving your understanding of the English tradition as somehow inspired by God. No, not at all. Is the King James Version more inspired than any others? See, elevating your culture, preserving your nation, preserving your way of life, even your religious traditions above the gospel is a good way to identify fake faith. After all, was it not Jesus who commissioned all Christians to go make disciples of all nations, including nations many considered enemies? Literally, the whole book of Jonah is built around this principle. Hatred of the Ninevites was rooted in the war crimes they committed against Israel, and yet, where did God's grace extend? To the Ninevites. Jealousy over God's blessings and affections for your nation, jealousy over God's blessing and affections for your culture above all others, so very often gets in the way of genuine faith because you get more wrapped up about preserving that than you do about honoring Christ. A fake faith wants the blessings of a godly society without repentance. A fake faith wants the blessings of a godly society without dying to self and living for Christ. Content with a moral facade. May we learn to rejoice with the angels in heaven over the conversion of every single soul, whether they be enemy or friend. And that's what marks saving faith. There's a final question to help you identify gospel faith. Do you cherish God's persistent grace? Do you cherish God's persistent grace? Now, when you're a kid, birthdays seem to take an eternity to come, right? Ten months, six months away. I mean, it's practically a lifetime to wait for your next birthday. And as we grow older, birthdays lose their luster, as they just remind us that we're on the downward side of our prime. But even so, when you're 30, 40, maybe even 50, the major end-of-life events like retirement and funeral, um, they seem like distant possibilities. But try waiting hundreds of years for a promise. It's not going to happen. You're not going to survive that, right? And yet God, after he promises Abraham that all the nations in the world will be blessed through his son, through his offspring, God waits 2,300 years before, before wholesale Gentile conversion happens during the book of Acts and ushers in the church age, which we are all benefits of because most of us in the room are indeed Gentile. See, God's grace to all nations is foreshadowed repeatedly in Old Testament stories and in Old Testament prophets, but it took a long time to happen. So we see the foreshadowing in Isaiah. Look at verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Speaking of Gentiles, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Speaking of us Gentiles. God's grace is to extend to all in due time. He is not slow to fulfill his promises, but he does so in God's perfect timing. And did you pick up again on the theme from Romans chapter 9 in this verse? Namely, God's salvation, God's sovereignty over salvation. Look at the end of verse 20. God says, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Who is the actor here? God. God shows himself at the right time in his ways to the Gentiles. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't search him out. What does the beginning of uh, the quote say? 
I have been found by those who did not seek me. Who's the actor there? It's the person who's seeking and finding God. See, they're right next to each other. There are two truths that, that some people think are at complete odds. See, God's full and complete sovereign choice of who belongs to him, his sovereign right to open blind eyes, and our responsibility to find Jesus, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are played out again and again in these two chapters, and both are always 100% true. And so it was at the right time God ushers in an age of Gentile churches. But what about Israel? Is God somehow done with Israel? Look at verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Again, God's persistent offer of grace is always on display for his people. Why do you think Israel has simply survived in spite of so many wanting her dead? And Jews are particularly well-positioned to understand God's grace that comes through Christ alone. He is, after all, their prophesied Jewish Messiah. See, genuine faith sees God's persistent offer of gospel grace, not just as an epic defining trait, but a description, not just of a, of a church age, but the persistent offer of grace offered to Israel and to us as an insight into the very character of God. God is patient. God is doggedly persistent. God offers grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. And don't you need it every day? Don't you need God's grace, his forgiveness, because you still struggle with sin? And so it is. Genuine gospel faith cherishes God's persistent grace. We cherish new morning mercies as a precious gift. For every day we wake, we are reminded that the very breath in our lungs is an undeserved gift as God withholds his just wrath for my sins the day before. God's grace is not simply good for the beginning of the Christian life so that we can live however we want to live. No, the faithful recognize God's grace as a daily and persistent blessing. As we close, I want you to turn to Hebrews 3, verse 12. I had a good and godly roommate in college, and one time in particular, he called me out to confront me of a pretty obvious manifestation of pride in my life, and I needed it. As a rule follower type, I had set quite a few rules in place that were just vague enough to be able to manage to keep them, and I was pretty good at keeping rules. And pride was welling up, and, and, and heart sins, and sins that were kind of obvious on the fringes of my life, were left unconfessed and undealt with, but were pretty obvious to him. You see, if you have genuine saving faith, warnings, even direct warnings to you, are, are very good. They are very helpful because they are used by God to check our hearts. And such is the case with a sermon like today. Warnings and, and exhortations to work out salvation with fear and trembling are a good thing. And it certainly is valuable to evaluate if your faith is true or false. So as we close, let's listen to one final warning a warning that captures much of what we saw today that helps us identify genuine gospel faith. 
Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold on our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So beloved, if you've discerned that you do not belong to Jesus today, today is the day. If you hear his voice, turn and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have shown us that there is a distinction between true and false faith. We thank you that you've showed us that there are certainly many people who understand the gospel, who, who say they even love Jesus or believe in Jesus in some way, and yet clearly do not serve and glorify and obey him or want to worship him as Lord. So, Lord, I pray that if uh, there be some of us in this room who do not know you as their Lord and Savior and who have identified themselves as likely having false faith, that today would be a day of salvation. Today would be a day where you reconcile lost sinners to yourself. And we also pray for many of us in this room who uh, faithfully do struggle uh, through sin who have maybe been confronted with the realities of our shortcomings today as, as we've just studied God's word together and, and, and realizing, been convicted of some of our tendencies which, which do not comport with genuine faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be constantly turning back to you. Lord, and if we do belong to you, clearly you tell us without a shadow of a doubt, nothing can separate us from your love that you will sustain us, you will continue to convict us, you will continue to grow us, you will continue to make us more and more into your image. Lord, we pray all of these things in the glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.